1: In laboratories all over the country, of the world, cancer cells are growing. Cancer cells that come from one source, a woman named Henrietta Lacks. They've been growing, dividing, and multiplying since 1951, 60 years.
2: One scientist actually estimated that if you could have saved all of the cells that ever grew from this one little sample and piled them all on a scale, that they'd weigh more than 50 million metric tons, which is like sort of an inconceivable number of cells. Journalist Rebecca Skloot
3: writes in her book about Henrietta Lacks that for more than a year, Henrietta had been telling close girlfriends that something didn't feel right, that she was in pain. Henrietta described it as a
2: knot in her womb. Like She just knew there was something wrong inside of her and there was some pain and she eventually went sort of looking for it and she palpated the tumor on her cervix herself with her finger one day in the bathtub. So she had cervical cancer, which was caused by HPV, the virus that causes cervical cancer. And she went to the doctor for a diagnosis probably pretty late in the progress of the disease. Henrietta
3: Lacks was in her early 30s, an African-American mother of five who worked in the tobacco fields of Clover, Virginia, before moving to Baltimore in search of work.
1: Howard Jones was the gynecologist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore who treated her.
2: She got what was absolutely the standard treatment at the time, which was radium therapy. They would take tubes of radium, which is radioactive material, and literally sew those to the surface of the cervix. And they would leave those tubes there for a few days to essentially burn off the cancer. And today we have forms of that kind of internal radiation, you know, the seeds that they use for treating prostate cancer, where they'll put little radioactive seeds in the prostate. But it was much stronger than what we'd use today. So the radiation that people were exposed to was much more than it is now.
1: She was being treated in the public ward of Johns Hopkins, which was one of the few hospitals in the city that treated black patients at that time.
2: So she did get what any woman would have gotten for cervical cancer. The question about when she got it is, I think, is a valid question. I mean, she was treated pretty late in the process. Some of that was because she didn't come back for various follow-ups. She, you know, her doctors would recommend her to come back in for various treatments and she wouldn't. And a lot of that was just cultural, you know. African-American woman in the 50s going into a segregated hospital was sort of a terrifying thing and she didn't know anything about cancer she didn't even know the terms, cervix, biopsy, any of that stuff and you know and she seemed very healthy at the time and so for her going in there was was sort of a last, a last resort. And it was during one of Henrietta's first visits that her doctor took a tissue
3: sample of her cancer
2: with the hope that they could get the cells to grow in the lab. She went in one day just to get this not looked at, and they took a biopsy, and that's when they found out it was cervical cancer. And they called her back in a few days later for the radium therapy, and that's when the cells were taken. So they put her under anesthetic, and without telling her ahead of time, her doctor just took a little piece of her tumor and put that in a dish and sent it down the hall to George Guy, who was the head of tissue culture research at Hopkins.
1: George Guy knew that these cells, if he could get them to grow in a culture, would be a scientific breakthrough, the first human cells grown in the lab. And the cancer cells of Henrietta Lacks did grow, and they become invaluable to cell biologists who still use them today.
3: The cells that were taken without Henrietta's knowledge would become famous in laboratories all over the world, while the woman that they came from slipped into obscurity, and the children of Henrietta Lacks wouldn't learn that their mother's cells were still alive until more than 20 years after her death.
1: I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. On Big Picture Science, we look at the story of Henrietta Lacks with a new perspective, not just how her cells revolutionized medical science, but what it meant to her children to learn that her cells were still alive. And what it means for
1: a cell to be immortal, whether it's a cancer cell or a stem cell, a special kind of biology that offers the promise of rejuvenation.
3: But first, just a cell. Now, we know that we're all made up of cells, and when you get right down to it, that's all we are, unless you count
1: atoms. But what is a cell? And what sort of business goes on in that tiny building block of life?
4: My name is Randy Scheckman. I'm a professor of molecular and cell biology here at UC Berkeley. A cell is the fundamental unit of life. All organisms consist either of a single cell or of many cells. A cell consists basically of two parts. There's the surface of the cell. It makes contact with other cells. It communicates with other cells. And then there's the inside of the cell. The inside of the cell is all the bits and pieces, the nuts and bolts, the machines that cause a cell to be able to communicate with its environment, to crawl around on a surface, and to divide. There's a nucleus which holds the blueprint, the chromosomes of the cell. Humans have around 23,000 genes contained in long strings of DNA molecules called chromosomes that wrap very tightly and they contain the instructions. They encode all of the proteins that must be produced outside of the nucleus. By itself, the nucleus is inert. If you just have chromosomes by themselves, It's a blueprint, it's very important instructions, but the instructions need enzymes to interpret that information. The cytoplasm is a very thick soup. You might compare it to something like a beef stew. Very thick consistency. Crowded, very crowded with proteins that are bumping into each other and have trouble jostling around. And the mitochondrion, has a specialized role in producing this currency that powers everything else that goes on the cell. This currency is a chemical called ATP. So when you have food, you produce glucose by digestion. It gets taken up into cells, and the glucose starts being broken down in the cytoplasm, and it releases energy captured in the form of ATP. And the parts of the glucose molecule are then shipped into the mitochondrion To be fully broken down, if you didn't have mitochondria, you'd be in really bad shape. There are wonderful images of cells, live images of cells, that allow you to see particular molecules, that allows you to put a a molecule that emits light right onto a protein, and to watch that protein, or the mitochondrion, move around in living cells if you were able to see all of the different bits and pieces moving simultaneously, uh, it would not seem tranquil at all. It would really seem like New York City during rush hour.
3: So there is this busy life inside a cell.
1: Like a city, like, like New York City, like any big city you've been to, crowded, everything moving purposefully, but then how in the midst of that busy but controlled mayhem does a cell know how to split in two to create another
4: bustling industrious world?
3: Or in the case of the cells of Henrietta Lacks, not knowing that it should stop dividing.
4: The instructions that a cell relies on to make a decision about dividing is an interplay between the genes that are contained in the nucleus and uh, signaling molecules on the cell surface and in the cytoplasm of the cell. It's not purely dictated by the nucleus. In fact, there's some really neat experiments done long ago where you can take the nucleus out of an egg, out of a frog egg. If you take the nucleus right out of the frog egg, you can watch even without the nucleus as the egg continues to divide and to go through contractions that are characteristic of cell divisions. So even without the nucleus, the cytoplasm is programmed to continue to go through cell division. What
3: happens in the case of cancer then when we talked about cells dividing? Yeah. So when cells divide uncontrollably, what's, what's happened?
4: Yes, well, uh, so what is cancer? Cancer is unfortunately not a simple disease there are many different forms of cancer and they vary. These hundreds of different forms of cancer vary in the manner in which cell division control is perturbed. That's basically what what happens in a cancer cell. So in your body, in the pancreas for instance, the cells are growing and dividing at a very slow rate. However, if some control signal goes awry, Some cells lose their normal checks, the the normal control of the surrounding tissue that tells them to remain more or less dormant, and these cells can divide in an uncontrolled manner, giving rise to uh, cancer.
3: Are cancer cells immortal? Can they be immortal? Could they divide through eternity?
4: Well, you know, any cell could, in principle, divide through eternity. I mean, for instance, if you consider a bacterium, if you, get, if you grow a bacterium in a liquid broth so that it's uh, nutritionally satisfied, it will just keep growing and dividing. Eventually, it runs out of nutrients, and so it stops dividing.
3: But if it didn't run out of nutrients, it would be immortal? Yes. So is is a cell, in your opinion, is cell life? Is, I mean, a cell is living, but is it life?
4: A cell absolutely is life. The most dramatic example is an experiment that was performed now just three years ago by a Japanese scientist by the name of Yamanaka, Shinya Yamanaka. What Yamanaka did was he took a skin cell from a mouse and he introduced into that cell four mouse genes that control the ability of the cell to behave like an embryonic stem cell. He was able to reprogram the cell. Now, you know, an adult skin cell he from the mouse, he was able to if you will, turn the clock back and make an embryonic stem cell from that skin cell, he could then take that product of a cell culture in the laboratory and create a whole new mouse out of that cell. So by that definition, which is the most recent and most dramatic example, any cell in your body potentially has the ability to create a whole new life.
1: About 10 trillion cells make up Randy Sheckman, a molecular and cell biologist at the University of California, Berkeley, but we're not done with him. More on cells, on immortal cells, and the story of the cells of Henrietta Lacks.
0: You don't need to be a biologist to become a Team SETI member, but thinking like one can't hurt. Because scientists at the SETI Institute are studying life on this planet, including the cells and bits of DNA that comprise it, in order to understand its nature and the search for it elsewhere in the universe. You can support this endeavor by becoming a Team SETI member. It's easy to do at SETI.org. Consider your support the mitochondrion of the whole operation, the battery, the juice that helps keep it going. And if you want to see a collection of animal cells that deserve a sidebar in a biology textbook, just feast your eyes on the photo of the radio show staff that you'll receive in the mail. That is, after you join Team SETI and send us an email at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. SETI.org and bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Now that wasn't such a hard sell, was it?
3: You're listening to Cell Cell, and this is Big Picture Science. After the cells of Henrietta
1: Lacks were taken from her, they went on to have a life of their own. In laboratories around the world, they became known, and still are known, as HeLa cells. It's an abbreviation, H-E for Henrietta and L-A for Lacks. And these cells, from a tissue sample about the size of a dime, were collected without her knowledge or consent, says journalist Rebecca Skloot. But remember, this was 1951.
2: At the time, we didn't even have the concept of informed consent that we have now. So it was absolutely standard practice to take samples like this and use them in research. And the way that this was done at the time would be illegal today in some ways. A scientist can't just go and take samples from someone specifically for research without informed consent first. But we do leave tissues behind all the time in hospitals with biopsies and you know, fetal blood spots for genetic testing. And... If your identity is stripped from them, which it it is now, and the researcher hasn't come to you and taken them just for research, then that doesn't require informed consent even today. So a lot of people's samples are being used out there without them entirely realizing it. It's likely
1: that very few tissue samples will go on to become as famous, as essential to basic cell biology, as those of Henrietta Lacks. HeLa cells became universally known. Even as the woman who unwittingly donated them was lost to history, We'll hear more later in the show about what it meant to Henrietta's children to learn about the removed tissue. In 1951, these cells really did make history. Once they were cultured in the lab, a triumph for scientists who've been trying to do that for decades.
2: Well, at the time, they didn't really know much about cells in general. There was a lot we didn't know. We didn't really know what DNA was. And they didn't know the difference between a normal cell and a cancer cell. So when the HeLa cells grew in the lab, they reshaped medical science, says
1: Randy Sheckman, a cell biologist at the University of California in Berkeley.
4: Hela cell to someone who studies mammals have been as important in studying what goes on inside of a cell as bacteria have been to those who study microorganisms.
2: Scientists knew that if they could grow an, a quote-unquote immortal human cell line, which is one that will just live in culture forever and never die basically that they could use those in some cases in place of animals for animal testing and that they would in some cases be a better model for people than animals were because they were you know they were small parts of a person living in culture so you could do things to those cells that you wouldn't be able to do to a living human you can grow them in the laboratory they're hardy like bombarding them with radiation to see what happens to them they reproduce fairly rapidly or infecting them with various viruses and trying to use various drugs to stop the viruses they can be
4: genetically manipulated. And so for anyone interested in what fundamentally goes on inside of a mammalian cell, Gila is often one of the favored experimental objects in a laboratory.
2: As a sort of miniature model of a human. They're
3: cancer cells and one of the things of the many things that they studied with these cells over the years was polio now how do you study polio <laughs> with a cancer cell don't you need a normal healthy cell to study polio and some of the other diseases that were studied with her cells have been studied yeah with her
2: cells? the the question about why you would use cancer cells is Yes. Is, is a good one. And it's one I hear, actually, often. and Because it does. It seems very counterintuitive. You use cancer cells to study completely normal things. It's very
4: difficult to have a normal cell growing in the laboratory. It is almost, by definition, uh, when a cell is growing in the laboratory, something wrong has happened.
2: There are things that are normal about HeLa cells. You know, They have membranes that viruses have to get through in order to go into a cell. And at the time, they didn't really know how that worked. So they could use HeLa cells to look at how does a virus go into a cell. They also do basic things like they metabolize and they create energy and they, they do those sort of basic cell functioning things. And one of the things that's interesting is that the fact that they're cancer actually in some ways makes them more useful for some of the normal things because what they do normally they do faster
4: In the case of the HeLa cells, it was enormously potent division, so potent that these cells were able to grow more or less in perpetuity in the laboratory. So that tumor of hers may have had some very special capabilities that have allowed it to be grown and maintained all these years.
2: And that mass production was really incredibly important for so much science. And that's how the polio vaccine development really worked with her cells was because they could be mass produced. You can infect a HeLa cell with polio or any other virus and then as the cells grow and grow and grow, the virus will grow and grow with it. So you can mass produce polio or any other virus using the cells and then just extract the virus from the cells. So that was definitely part of it. But really, in a lot of ways, it's just the foundation of cell culture. So today, you know, stem cell research, in vitro fertilization, basically anything that involves growing cells and culture. So there's that and I mean there are a lot of other ways and now, I mean, scientists can alter HeLa cells. So you can take a HeLa cell and change it so it behaves like a heart cell or uh, some other kind of cell. So they're used as a sort of baseline for so much research. So they're still used today. Oh yeah. Have you
3: ever worked with HeLa cells? Oh yes.
4: We work with HeLa cells all the time in my lab. They're hardy little buggers. They grow quite nicely and uh, they're very easy to add genes and remove genes to study the effect of how a process works in the cell.
3: Where did you get the HeLa cells?
4: Uh, Well, we have a culture facility in this building that maintains lots of cell lines that we have received from laboratories all over the world. I don't know where our particular HeLa cell line came from, but we have it from, from the facility in this building
2: they went up in some of the early space missions yeah to see what would happen to human cells in zero gravity which is sort of fascinating and what they found was um, was sort of creepy because HeLa cells each time they went up they grew faster so they would go up once into space and they would grow a little faster and then the next time even faster than the previous time and then previous time. And so they thought, well, okay. so if an astronaut has a tumor growing in them somewhere, if we send the the astronaut up into space several times, does that mean each time that person goes up, the cancer is going to grow faster and faster and faster? Could we be speeding up some sort of processes in their body? Um, Because that didn't happen with normal cells. They eventually sent normal cells up, too, and they didn't do that.
3: A little later in the show, Rebecca Sklut tells us what happened when Henrietta's children discovered how their mother's cells had been used for medical science. But first, a few more questions for Randy Sheckman. Would you say that the HeLa cells are immortal? I keep coming back to this idea of mortal because it just, it seems incredible to me. But are HeLa cells immortal cells?
4: <laughs> well, I, I wonder if the way you use the word immortal is different than the way I, I use it. Immortal to me in this context means that it they behave just like a microorganism provided the right nutrients they can grow indefinitely. That's that's what immortal means to a cell biologist. What what, what meaning do you have from, I don't, from the word immortal? I don't work Ma- with yeah. immortality yeah, or the yeah. concept so, of it very somehow, often. Somehow immortality has another layer of meaning that, that maybe a biologist doesn't apply.
3: Well I think the idea that something never dies is something that is mysterious mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and even even if it's a cell, mm-hmm. and I wonder if, if that means that, that this woman Henrietta Lacks continues to live in some form.
4: Well, that's a so whether Henrietta Lacks lives on through her cells is a is a philosophic question, not a scientific question. Her her cells in this tumor that grow that are growing now in the laboratory bear very little resemblance, if any, to the woman that lived in the 1950s. They may have her genetic complement, but because of the cancer, her chromosome balance is completely changed, and the numbers and copies of genes probably quite different than the, the cells that were first taken from her body. So if your question is, could we take these cells and in some way recreate Henrietta Lacks, would that be the definition of immortality? The answer I would give you is no, we could not recreate Henrietta Lacks, I doubt. Whereas it would be in principle possible to take an embryonic stem cell or to create an embryonic stem cell from a normal, let's say, skin cell of a human. It could in principle be possible to recreate a person from that embryonic stem cell, which is part of the debate about uh, restrictions on the use of human embryonic stem cells for human cloning that would be, in a way, creating a cell that was immortal. But I don't think HeLa cells could, in any sense, be used to recreate Henrietta Lacks now.
3: But it's an interesting bridge that you've just made between two different kinds of immortality. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the cell world, mm-hmm. one is cancer cell mm-hmm. and one is a stem cell, yes. and one takes away life ultimately to the animal who, who is host of the cancer, but the stem cells may actually extend life.
4: Yes. Yes. One day. One, it could, it, in, in many different ways. So stem cells, as people know, reading the newspaper, stem cells, one hopes, can be used to replace diseased tissues. There are terrible diseases like diabetes, Parkinson's, maybe even Alzheimer's, where there is some prospect for the replacement of the relatively small numbers of cells that go bad in these diseases.
3: Can you just remind us why that is, and maybe this just gets at the definition of what a stem cell is. Why does it have this ability to become any cell?
4: Yeah, so the simplest definition of a stem cell is a cell that has the ability to grow and produce more copies and then given the right cues to begin to develop along either a certain path or multiple independent paths. And In the embryo, in the early embryo, there's a small cluster of cells in the very early embryo called the inner cell mass and these cells are the reservoir for all development. They can be called on to make any of the tissues that are created during embryonic development. Now as development progresses, organs are created that begin to collect uh, more adult-like stem cells that have more limited potential They can be called on to create new nerve cells or new blood cells. But they cannot easily be turned around to create some other tissue from some other organ.
3: So it's a little bit like if you had not a blank slate, but a blank piece of paper. And once you begin writing on it, you could turn it into a poem or a drawing Mm -hmm. or a novel or a note to yourself. Mm -hmm. Once you start down one path. Yes, yes you can't start down another path yes. now if you, if you could yes. go back to that blank piece of paper then right. you could start right. again with a poem
4: exactly that's a wonderful analogy and it, it makes it uh, it makes it all the more appropriate when when one considers this remarkable discovery of yamanaka's because what he showed is that you can take an adult cell that for all intents and purposes has been the the uh, the chapter is written the poem is complete and you can erase that poem or chapter seemingly erase the instructions that created the skin cell and turn it back to a blank page where it can then receive new instructions and go in a different direction
1: and imagine if that new direction could be well in the brain toward new neurons i mean i wouldn't mind having a new bit of cerebral machinery am i out of luck well for many years the brain was thought to be static That is, that all the brain cells you're ever going to have, you got when you were a baby, and all you can look forward to is waiting for the connections between cells to break down in a process we call aging, also known as, why are my car keys in the refrigerator? In other words, you got no new neurons once you became an adult. Bummer. But now it turns out that new nerve cells are being created. Recent research suggests they are made from adult neural stem cells in the brain. Molly spoke with one of the field's leading researchers, Fred Gage, a neurobiologist at the Laboratory of Genetics at the Salk Institute.
3: Dr. Gage, scientists were surprised to find stem cells in the brain. Why is
5: that? I think part of the reason is that when we think of the brain and its importance to our function and to who we are as individuals and our memories, if there were new cells coming in all the time, that might be incompatible with sort of normal thinking because it would interrupt past memories. The other thing is that the cells in the brain are very complex. They're called neurons, and they're highly branched. And from a biological perspective, it was really hard to think that a neuron could actually duplicate itself. So both of those things, over time, have been shown to be not an accurate way to look at it.
3: So just to take your first point, the idea is the brain needs a certain amount of stability. So if it's always changing, then it turns chaotic, then um, we can't retain our memories. I mean, it wouldn't be very useful for us to have a brain that was in constant flux.
5: That's absolutely correct. And the truth is that this birth of new neurons, or the introduction of new neurons in the brain, only occurs in a very few sites. So it's not happening everywhere. And one of the areas where it occurs is an area of the brain Uh, called hippocampus, and it's involved in learning and memory. And if you think about the fact that one of the things that mammals do throughout life is to learn new things about their environment throughout life, and even learn new strategies for how to learn new things throughout their life, then the idea that in this area of the brain we have new neurons coming in throughout life makes a little bit more sense. So the hesitancy to accept this was tempered a little bit by the idea that it's only restricted to these areas that are quite dynamic and involved in dynamic processes. And that the other reason that people were resistant to this is the idea that neurons being so complex, how could they divide? And neurons don't divide, it turns out, but rather there are primitive cells, baby cells, or what we call stem cells, that exist in the area of the hippocampus, and just in that area they divide what we call self-renewing divides. They give one copy of themselves and their daughter becomes the neuron, but you retain that stem cell in the brain. And so neurons don't really divide. It's these, these primitive cells that give rise to new neurons throughout life.
3: Why is that? Why can't we just keep the cells that we have? I mean, are they getting old? Are they disintegrating in, in some way? Why do we need
5: this fresh supply of, of new cells? I think that's a really good question and I, I think we're beginning to understand something about the role that these cells play in learning new things in our environment but I don't think I can really tell you why some other uh, mechanism wasn't developed or evolved to deal with the kinds of memories that these cells contribute to. It's an evolutionary process that evolution chose this as a mechanism for doing it. It may be in part because there's not much turnover, there's not their brains that you're born with for the most part stay throughout life and yet your experiences are quite varied from the time that you're born to the time you die every day every minute you're learning new things so it may be that in order to allow for the variety of new experiences and particularly relating different experiences one to another helps to have cells that have certain properties and in part I think it's the youthfulness of these cells They're hyperactive when they're young, and we think that that youthfulness is a feature that allows them to contribute to adding new associations about events that occur in our life.
3: Well, this gets into the idea of neuroplasticity, doesn't it? And could you just articulate what the connection is between neuroplasticity, the idea that our brains are more plastic than we thought, that we can learn things at more advanced ages, and actually there's some repair that goes on,
5: and stem cells, what's the connection between the two? So the term plasticity is an interesting word, but in mechanical terms and material sciences, this plastic response is when a force comes in contact with an object and moves it, changes it in some way that doesn't bounce back, so it's not elastic, but a plastic response is something that changes and it reforms. So if you think about that in terms of the brain experiences, impact the brain, to change it slightly, not bouncing it back, but change it in a way. So connections between cells are modified by experiences. But not too much, as you said, because you have to retain a certain amount of stability, right? You have to retain a certain amount of stability. So neuroplasticity or brain plasticity is really reshaping connections and structure of the brain based on the experiences that you have so that now you will integrate into your behavior something about the experience that you had because you've changed your brain to do it. The birth of new neurons is just an exaggerated form of this because behavior and environmental experiences push these cells induce them to be born and help them to connect. So instead of just a, a normal neuron Changing some of its connections, you get a whole new neuron being added to the environment based on experience. So the principle's the same, it's just a more exaggerated version of it in this one area of the brain that's involved in the formation of new memories. Well, you said that one of the traits
3: of these neuron stem cells is that they can integrate. You know, and and from someone who has tried to slip into a party and not be noticed and yeah, that sort of yeah, thing yeah. or co- when you come in late at the back of the classroom yeah. it's very hard to do so how is it that these cells as they become neurons are able to integrate and take up where the old cell left off
5: so we didn't know the answer to that until recently what, what it appears based on the data that's being collected now is that when the new cells come in and they begin to form connections they don't make absolutely new connections. What they do is they compete with the neurons that are already there. And so this may be part of the evolutionary success of this is that there are older cells in the brain that have older connections. And here are these new cells that are coming in. And if the appropriate stimulation, if you have a lot of enrichment, the new cells are going to survive better. And they're going to be carrying information about the new experience, the new environment that they're having. But they they're not making new connections. They're competing out connections that had previously been there. So this is real plasticity in, in a very dramatic sense because it's changing the shape of the brain in that area.
3: Thank you very much.
5: My pleasure. Fred Gage is a professor at the Laboratory
1: of Genetics at the Salk Institute. Well, the idea of stem cells in the brain sounds promising,
4: says Randy Sheckman. I mean, wouldn't it be great if these adult nerve cells could somehow uh, repair the enormous damage that's created in a patient with Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, that damage is so overwhelming that the adult stem cells in the brain are incapable of keeping up. Maybe there are things that could be used to boost their proliferation, but the danger is that every time you stimulate the proliferation of a stem cell, you create the opportunity for a cancer. It turns out that sometimes in experimental animals when you implant stem cells or even stem cells that you've allowed to develop in the laboratory the experimental animal comes down with tumors that uh, may be as a result of the stem cell going beyond its normal constraints and becoming more like a tumor.
3: So the idea is that we want to try to bring the technology to the point that you could bring more stem cells in reinforcements, if you will, to try to... uh... Well, that's one
4: strategy. That's one strategy. The other strategy, of course, is to try to find ways that are more effective in curing these really terrible diseases, like cancer, that really are not possible to overwhelm with stem cells just yet.
3: To what end? How long do we try to extend life?
4: Yeah. So the question is, could we imagine finding what the ultimate basis of aging is, and perhaps using stem cells to combat that, create a human being who could live much longer than normal? That's of course a philosophic question. I've heard it argued that science could extend life to the age of Methuselah, thousands of years. You'd have to ask yourself whether that's a good thing. Personally, and here I'm using my own views, not as a scientist, personally, I think it would be a terrible thing. I think uh, the world is better off having new ideas and young people and fresh approaches and to be dominated by an aging population that never goes away, I think would be the end of progress. Next, Gila
1: cells became famous all over the world, but not with the knowledge of the family of Henrietta Lacks. Find out what it's meant to her children to discover more than 20 years after Henrietta's death that their mother's cells were still alive. It's Cell Cell on Big Picture Science.
6: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face off launches April 9th.
1: Welcome back to Big Picture Science. Journalist Rebecca Skloot researched the story of Henrietta Lacks for 10 years. She said that when she first heard of Gila cells, she was not only interested to learn who Gila was, she was obsessed. Scientists who used the cells just didn't seem to know. They referred to the woman whose tissue was unwittingly donated to their labs as Helen Lane, sometimes Helen Larson, but never as Henrietta Lacks. But her family didn't forget who Henrietta was. The radium therapy at Johns Hopkins didn't save her, and five young children, the youngest, Deborah was just over a year old, lost their 31-year-old mother. Rebecca Skloot wanted to find out what happened to that family. In the process of researching the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, which included many months just getting the Lax family to trust her, she learned of their reaction to the news more than 20 years after Henrietta's death that their mother's HeLa cells were still alive and still being used in laboratories all over the world. Rebecca visited the spot where Henrietta is buried in Clover, Virginia.
2: She is buried in an unmarked grave behind the house where she was raised in Southern Virginia. Uh, It's this uh, little sort of old slave shack. And she was raised in this house, and there's a little family cemetery behind it, and she's somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And can you describe the trajectory of her of her children's lives after they lost her mother? Yeah, you know, her children—they were she, very young. Yes, yeah, so she had five kids when she died. They ranged in age. I mean, one of them was actually she was pregnant with one of them when she sort of first probably got, developed the tumor, and. They, Yeah, they lived incredibly hard lives after her death. They were sort of passed from one family member to another. Their father was around but working all the time and their various cousins would come in and try to help raise the kids and you know, they, one of them infected the kids with tuberculosis and just lived these incredibly hard lives. They were very poor. One thing that becomes an issue for them sort of later in life with the story of the cells is that most of them were deaf or hard of hearing. And they went through most of their education without anyone realizing it. So they her kids never really learned to read or write because no one knew until they were adults that they couldn't hear. So, you know, later down the road, this sort of compounded problems that they had when they eventually found out about the cells because they didn't have the educational background to really understand what people were saying to them. You know, so her kids and her husband didn't know that the cells were alive until the 70s. And the way that they found out is that HeLa cells can contaminate other cultures. So it's sort of amazing. They can float on dust particles in the air. If you touch a dish of HeLa cells and then you go touch another dish, you can transfer cells from one to the other. And in the late 60s, one scientist realized this and denied. Now, why is that
3: upsetting? Did they were all yeah. HeLa? What did that do?
2: Well, I mean, one of the big things was that it called into question a lot of research results. So if you were doing research on prostate cancer and looking at how a specific drug affected prostate cancer and then you were actually working with cervical cancer, it didn't really tell you much about prostate cancer. So there was some of it that just started seeming like it was invalidating people's results. So to settle this debate and essentially prove that HeLa cells had actually taken over, one scientist decided to track down her kids and sort of treat it like a crime scene. And this was the early days of gene mapping, and he figured if he could get DNA samples from her kids and compare those to all these cell lines, that he could figure out what was Gila and what wasn't because her kid's DNA would match her DNA in the cells. So he actually sent a postdoc to call her husband one day. And the way her husband understood the call, I mean, he had a third grade education. He didn't know what a cell was. The way he understood the call was essentially we've got your wife. She's alive in a laboratory. We've been doing research on her for the last 25 years. Is that actually what they said? No, not at all. That's how he understood That's it. That's how he understood it. And that she was still alive. That she was still alive or somehow part of her was still alive. Mm. And that, I mean, the big thing is that he also thought that they wanted to test the kids to see if they had cancer. And her kids were all around 30 when this happened. And every, they all knew that Henrietta died around 30. No one really knew, understood why she died. So for them, this all seemed to make sense. The scientists were coming to say whether the kids were now going to die. So the scientists didn't say any of that. They said, you know, we need to look at your kids' HLA markers and compare those to the heathal cells. And, you know, I mean, his, the only kind of cell that Henrietta's husband had ever heard of was a prison cell. And he literally thought, well, okay, so they have her or part of her in a prison cell somewhere. And the scientists didn't realize that he didn't understand the family didn't under, realize that there was, they were being used in research and so her whole family got sucked into this world of research that they didn't really understand. Now you came onto the scene at around
3: 1999 or so. I mean you've been researching this <laughs> book for 10 years and I'm wondering what you
2: felt had not been told about Henrietta's story. Well everything really. Um, there had been some newspa- some magazine articles that had come out at various points that would sort of tell the nugget of the story. Cells taken from a woman without her knowledge in the 50s, went on to become this most important thing in medicine and became this product that was bought and sold and her family never profited. And that little tiny bit of it had been told quite a few times. But I got her daughter Deborah on the phone, which took a very long time to do. She really did not want to be found. We had this conversation where she little snippets of their story kind of came out. She's like, you know, somebody murdered somebody. Somebody stole Henrietta's medical records. And the combination of she was really excited in the beginning at the idea of me doing a book, but then also kind of terrified at the same time. And just hearing that in her voice and also hearing these little snippets of the story, um, I just realized, like, whoa, there's something much bigger here that nobody nobody knows anything about and I sort of need to find out what happened to her kids. And so much of the story is
3: is you, well a good part of it at least, is you winning over the trust of the family yeah, which took, took a long time. yeah,
2: it took about a year and a half to convince them to talk to me. you know they they didn't trust me for a good reason. I mean, I was one in a long line of people who come to them essentially wanting something having to do with the cells, particularly white people. And it had never gone well in the past.
3: and, and what you said about day, which was her um, her husband, Henrietta's husband, um, this confusion that he had and that the children had that maybe their mother was still alive. What were they struggling with? just knowing the knowledge that part of their mother was alive.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, a lot of it has to do with faith in, in a lot of ways. You know, Deborah very much believed her mother's soul was alive in these cells, and she worried very much that the research that was being done on the cells somehow harmed her mom. And so she would say things, you know, scientists would come to take samples from the kids or whatever, and she would say things like, can my mother rest in peace if you're sending these bits of her up to the moon? And when you inject her cells with these chemicals, does that hurt her somehow? Mm -hmm. Um, She was really worried that her mother felt the symptoms of the diseases that they were studying using her cells. So there was a lot of that, but she also really, in some ways, it was kind of a dream come true. You know, she her, was two when her mother died, and she wanted so desperately to know who her mother was. And I think getting the news 25 years later that part of her mother was still alive was this it was terrifying, but it was also oddly what, something that she'd kind of been hoping for her whole life. And she really hoped that these cells could somehow tell her things about her mom, so she would you know, ask scientists, can you look at these cells and tell me what my mother's favorite color was and whether she liked to dance? Um, Mm -hmm. That was something she was really fixated on, the idea of whether these cells could answer those kinds of questions for her.
3: And also there were these moments of discovery that you all shared together, and one of them was when you went to John Hopkins Mm -hmm. with Deborah and and with Zakaria, one of Henrietta's
2: sons, and you went to John Hopkins to see the cells You know, at that point, Deborah was in her mid-50s. Zakaria was in his, I think, early 50s. And they still didn't really know what the cells were. No one had explained to them what the cells were. And so they had this idea of what was alive in a lab. They knew it was part of their mother, but they didn't know what that part looked like. And it's not like there is this thing sitting in a lab somewhere or in labs everywhere. That is, there's the part of Henrietta that we have. You know, it's these little teeny tiny microscopic cells that you can't see without a microscope. And they live in these little tiny vials of liquid that is food. So just seeing the mechanics of how it all worked was really helpful for them. And I think being able to look through the microscope and actually see them and to see what they looked like, to see how big they were or big they weren't. was really helpful. And one of the things that was sort of the most incredible moment of that was that, you know, you can see cells dividing under a microscope. So the scientist whose lab we were in, he found one that was in the process of dividing and put it under the microscope and showed it to them. He said, look, this cell is turning into two cells. And and that was this incredible moment. I mean, that that is, you know, the cell reproducing itself. That's sort of their mother being alive and in motion in some way to them. So they very much saw that as being their mother actively alive um, under the microscope. But the other thing is that it was, they got to ask questions. And some of their questions were things that people could have answered for them a long time before if anyone had sort of stopped to, to sort of encourage them to ask questions. And one of the first questions Deborah asked was, which ones are the cancer cells and which ones are the normal cells? And they're all cancer cells. There are none of her normal cells that are surviving. And when the scientists told her that, she just went, oh. So it's not my mother's normal cells that are alive. It's just the cancer. And that really did somehow change something for her. She didn't realize that. You know, Zakaria, one of his questions was, why aren't they black? You know, she was black. Why aren't they black? And I just, it was a, it's a wonderful question. And we got into this whole discussion about race and on a cellular level that, you know, a cell is a cell and you can't look at a cell and see if the person was black or white or anything else. Now there's also the issue of money here, yeah. because,
3: as you said, the family was very poor. They lost their mother at a young age. Was anyone making? Has anyone made money off these cells? I'll just cut to the chase for yeah. that, because a lot of research <laughs> has been done, and has the family seen any of it? And then the big question is: Is should they have?
2: Right, people have definitely made money off the cells. I mean, you can go online today and buy a vial of HeLa cells for two hundred dollars um, from any number of biote- biological supply companies. And so there's that. But there are also products made using HeLa cells. So you can go online and buy a vial for around $200, or you can buy products made using HeLa cells for anywhere up to about $10,000 a vial. And and some of that is also the science that went into it, you know, the, the work it takes to grow them, the fact that they wouldn't have just survived on their own had you taken them out of her body and just put them in a dish and not done anything with them. So part of the question is sort of teasing out how much of this money is HeLa? How much of it is the science? And the family has never has never gotten any money out of it. To this day they can't afford health care. They don't have health insurance and they often say, you know, if our mother was so important to medicine, why can't we go to the doctor? And, you know, it's a really complicated question that's part of this much larger debate in science about who should profit off of biological materials and how should that be handled. I often get the question of, so now that the book has come out, has anybody stepped forward and sort of given the family any money? And the answer is no, and they probably won't, in part because of the precedent that it would set. The scientific biological supply companies, the scientific institutions worry that, you know, so if they give money to the Lax family, the question is, what about the millions of other people whose cells and tissues we've used in research without their knowledge, um, some of which have been commercialized? Do we have to give all of them money, too? And who gives them that money? And how much? And how do we figure all this out? You know, so there's that. And this, as a, for me, as a writer, kind of coming to this project, that was something that I struggled with a lot, this idea of not wanting to be another person who came along and potentially benefited off of this without them benefiting in some way. And so I set up this foundation, it's called the Henry Lacks Foundation, and some of the proceeds of the book go in there. And anyone can donate um, on the the foundation's website, and individual scientists donate regularly, and sort of just general readers. Rebecca, you've done so many interviews on this. (laughs) Um, You've told the same story
3: over and over, and it's an incredible story. Is there something that you haven't had a chance to say about this story?
2: Not really. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's challenging about this story and one of the reasons why it required a book and all these years to write is that it's really hard to boil it down into something and one of the things that it's very easy to sort of summarize the story as you know this victimized family and the sort of you know the bad scientists um, who took advantage of them and I think one of the things that I strive to do is to really to show the ways in which this was really difficult for the family and essentially the human story behind biological samples and that there's also human beings behind the scientists and that it's important to sort of look at all sides of the of the story. It's something that we still need to be talking about in a sense to figure out where to go. Thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for doing this.
1: Rebecca Sklut is a science journalist and author of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. In the time since Molly spoke with Rebecca, the unmarked grave of Henrietta Lacks has been marked and dedicated with her full name, Henrietta Pleasant Lacks.
3: The life of this episode is not immortal. You've been listening to Cell Cell on Big Picture Science, and you can hear this program again and browse our archive at radio.seti.org.
1: We thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program, also the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe requires some thought as to what form it might take and the nature of life's elemental building blocks, however tiny they may be.